To some, it was the fulfillment of a dream. To others, it was an instrument of destruction. A creation that could change the course of history. It was stolen from my factory. Where's the package? Tell the president. Tell me exactly why this merchandise is so important to the feds. It's a rocket. A rocket? Ow! What? What's the matter? I don't know. It's something under the seat. Oh, my. What are you doing here? What are you supposed to do? Is a bomb or something? No. I wouldn't touch that if I were you. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. Stand clear. What was that? Infinity and beyond. It's the pop culture historians. My name is Ryan Ritter. I have Jimmy McShane on the line. Jimmy, uh, besides me mixing uh, media there, uh, how are you this fine, fine evening? I'm doing quite well. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I was uh, left lacking for a way to open this episode because, of course, the uh, the character uh, that is the star of the movie we uh, are going to be talking about uh, this week doesn't really have like, a catchphrase. Uh, so I had to steal it from another Disney <laughs> Disney character that didn't exist yet. Uh, Fair enough. To all of you out there, uh, you've caught a smack dab in the middle of our tribute to the 90s superhero movies, part one. This, uh, this run of episodes will get us to about 1995 or so. And we started with 19... And now here we are. Here in 1991, uh, talking about uh, kind of a cult classic, uh, kind of an infamous flop at its time, but is uh, held in some regard now as the target has kind of uh, grown older and revisited it and perhaps pass it on to the next generation, possibly. And that, that's, of course, I, The Rocketeer. I, I didn't realize it was a flop. Um, I, I, did not, I legitimately did not realize that. Yeah, it's it's weird when like movies because I hadn't seen this, and we'll get down into you know kind of our own personal history with this. Uh, I'll tell you mine right now. I had no history with it, um, but I remember the print ads being uh, emblazoned, especially because I read like, do you ever read Disney Adventures? Do you remember that magazine at all? I remember it existed. Yeah, 
Yeah, and since this was a Disney movie, like they would have like ads for it, and like when it came out on VHS and stuff, like it'd be on. So like, I I knew what it was, but I didn't see it. And you know, 1991, there's st- still time. Like if you didn't see something and it didn't have any cultural foothold, it just kind of just came and went, and you don't think about it anymore. Um, yeah, it was. It, it didn't. It was not. It did not meet financial expectations, and we'll get into the history of all of that. But uh, really quickly, uh, what we're going to do here for the uninitiated uh, listeners out there in podcast land, we're going to talk a little bit about our, our own personal history with it. Uh, we're going to talk a little about the, the history. That's the historian's part of uh, pop culture storage, the, the history of the movie, how it was made. We'll go over the cast and the crew, talk about whether we liked it or didn't like it or what things could have been tweaked, which things stood out to us and then we're going to finish it off with a few categories mvp best line best use of superpowers and then maybe at the very end after we write it ourselves there'll be a little visit from our uh, resident in-house celebrity uh movie critic uh so yeah so jimmy real quick before we get into the brass sacks what is your you alluded to you you used to love this movie right you yeah i i watch this all the time with my with my sister growing up uh, as a kid, I, we loved it. Um, hadn't seen it in a good, good long time though before revisiting it again for this podcast. Uh, but yeah, I loved it as a kid, and you know, you always, I'm always worried. You, you go back, you watch something you loved as a kid, you watch it again, you're like, wow, this really sucks. Uh, but I didn't feel that way watching this. I don't know how you felt watching it for the first time as an adult, but watching this, I still really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, I generally was really impressed with it because I had the same thing as you. Like, I've seen it. You still hear it get talked about quite a bit, especially in this era where um, nostalgia is really big. Arguably, that's what we're doing. We're kind of the nostalgia cast uh, in this run of episodes. Um, For sure. Yeah, it's really big right now. And you so you, get, you hear it Reddit, like, does anyone remember like this movie? And people are like, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember really liking it. And like, even in the comments, and like, you look up YouTube clips, like, everyone's like, I really love this. I'd never seen it because it's just, it didn't really catch on. Like, they had plans to make a trilogy and stuff, and those got scrapped pretty quick. So I don't think it had like the foothold that maybe it could have had it been successful. So you kind of go, like, okay, like, did I have to like be there first? Because right, that was our struggle with the turtles, right? I was like, well, I've watched the first two now, and I did like the second one a little better. But the first one, I just I had a hard time wrapping my head around what the turtles even were. So I was worried the Rocketeer might be the same. Largely, it's pretty good. Um, I think there's one flaw keeping it from being a stone cold classic, in my estimation, and we'll talk about what that is. But overall, I think it's a really fun movie, and. I think it's the kind of move, it's kind of, because it's family entertainment, right? It's kids entertainment at the end of the day. But it's good, kind of good quality kids entertainment. And it's not, not dealing with heavy themes or anything. And I don't know if there's like a lot for kids to like take away from it, but it has a sense of wonder that these kind of movies don't always have. Like I'd be perfectly happy. Like if there's more stuff like this for kids to grow up on, there's lots more stuff out there. Um, Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So sometimes I wonder if, if like, I get that was for the whole family, but I didn't know who Howard Hughes was 
Right. When I watched this movie when I was a kid. Like there's there's a lot of things that like went completely over my head. Uh, you know, watching this when I was young, even like the whole like Nazi thing, I've kind of forgotten. Sure. Um, but again, I was pretty young, so maybe you know, and, and this was designed for the whole family, so you know, maybe that's okay. Well, it's possible also, like, maybe, like, you know, the kids like it, and, like, there's enough there for, like, mom and dad to watch, and, like, maybe, like, I feel like World War II was, like, a really big, like, topic for, like, a lot of dads for our generation, so, like, it's possible, like, if the kids were really interested, they could have filled them in on, like, who some of these people were. I think it helps that um, Terry O'Quinn isn't really doing, like, a Howard Hughes impression. He's just kind of, like, hi, I'm Howard Hughes, so it's not like you, he just kind of seems like a guy. It doesn't feel like you're missing anything. Thanks. <laughs> who he is you know i agree i agree which i also think was the right choice by him yes but. absolutely i can't stand when <laughs> they do impression there is there's a couple moments of that here and there um and they, they take me right out of the movie but largely and, and the cast is largely uh very very good uh, but before we dive in further there, uh, do we want to do a little history of uh, The Rocketeer as a character and as a movie? Yeah, that's, that's fine. Because uh, I have actually looked all this up, so I'll be learning this as you go. Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of a, it's a chance for me to kind of uh, put on the, <laughs> the researcher's hat because uh, our, our, other, our other feed of episodes, Doctor Who, uh, classic Doctor Who watch for you watch, that's kind of your job. So this allows me to kind of... Uh, tell you about what, uh, what's going on here. So without further ado, the history of the Rocketeer. So the character of the Rocketeer began life in 1982 as a comic book creation by Dave Stevens. Dave Stevens, a man, by the way, who lived several lives throughout his uh, lifetime. He drew storyboards in the 70s for Hanna-Barbera. He worked on storyboarding projects for stuff like Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Thriller music video. And then he created The Rocketeer. Uh, this will not surprise you, but the aesthetic of the character was, intentional ins was intentionally inspired by old 1930s serials. Um, yeah, well, I was going to mention that. Um watching this movie after watching all those serials it was a, a lot was very intentional and I, I can't help but wonder if that was even like maybe something i heard in the box office as how much of an homage this was to those serials yeah i have to wonder yeah we uh we started this whole superhero tribute thing uh last year or so and we started with uh, a lot of the serials that inspired a lot of the future superhero movies and even starring superheroes themselves, Batman and Superman and all that. And this was kind of a throwback to those. Yeah, I never know how, um, for some reason, it feels like intentionally kind of like warm-hearted tributes to old forms of media never capture people as much as maybe they should. It's a shame because it's, it's sincere. It has nothing like negative to say about those things. Like um, it's just sort of, inviting that aesthetic back in both the movie and but little I've seen of the comic. Um, it's a shame. Um, people always want to reflect back on an old way of living and how old ways of things are being done until people actually do them and then they don't go see it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like crazy. Same thing happened with like Sky Pilot, right? Like that 
Of course, that was also oh, tomorrow. That's the Jude Law thing. Yeah, yeah, the Jude Law thing, right? Of course, that was also done all green screen. So I guess it was kind of a combination of a throwback and something new. But yeah, for some reason, like like you said, everyone talks about wanting it, but then when it's actually done, no one wants it. This it's weird. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. People, I think people don't know what they want, and when you listen to the fans too much, you get a really bad product. That's uh, a different. <laughs> That's a different debate, though. Right. Yeah. Something you, you can, you, especially now that like you can be super online and like get feedback in real time. Like it's a losing battle. Yeah. Uh, but I think as a result, I think that maybe why the movie has kind of had its reputation lifted. It is kind of a warm alternative to maybe some of the more cold CGI of current superhero movies. It's possible. Possibly, and also like people like me liked it as a kid. Exactly, and I, you know, I think it's important to remember like people are so quick to judge. They come to a judgment like something's a failure right away or not. Like the Rocketeer was a box office failure, but I feel like as a cultural thing, it's become a success. Not a huge success, but a success. Important to realize that like things can change reputations over time. I guess. Yeah. And I feel like this has, has, this has happened to a lot of things where like it, it comes out, has initially a terrible reputation. And then 20 years later, it's a beloved classic. Well, um, I have to wonder now too, something that we haven't talked about too much, but I think it's now starting to rear its head a little bit. We talk about the lasting impact to the genre that all these movies that we talk about have. I think that one, two punch of Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which kind of were like the one and two biggest, like, box office opening weekends of all time and that's that's something that's going to come up a few more times as we get into the 2000s and the 2010s i think now it's like these movies have to like hit big like right away which is kind of a product of the blockbuster culture like that used to have to be you know movies could run in movie houses for two years and now it's all about that first weekend like we're starting to kind of see that culture permeate production now it seems to me in 1991, not not now in 2023, right. but yeah, I agree. And something I think is interesting is I wonder if streaming is moving us away from that a little bit. I I would I would hope so, and I would think if they're going to do if streaming is here to stay, and you know, it seemed like it, it seemed like it's going to, but I also understand that the bubble might be bursting a little bit. You would think there'd be benefit to, like, we are the, <laughs> everyone's houses are now the movie houses. So you can, you can kind of let things have legs a little bit. But I still think there's like this weird, especially on the Netflix side of like, all right, the movie dropped on Tuesday. It was a huge hit. Now we're moving it down the algorithm. Next thing. It's like, no, no, wait a minute. If you have something really good, we have, yeah, access, give it time. To it. We have access to it forever. Like, unless we right. pull a subscription. <laughs> like, it's... But anyway, yeah, they're doing it all wrong, I think. But they're also, they're also all millionaires and billionaires, so what do I know? <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the, uh, the, comic, the comic itself was sort of an in- intentionally like a limited run series. It was like four volumes, and then it got reprinted in like the mid-80s as like a, you know, a compendium, whatever they call those. Uh, the complete Rocketeer collection. And it was enough of a hit that the film rights got snapped up pretty immediately. Like in 1983, they're already working on this thing. So you go, okay, film rights were up. You know, the options were taken in 1983. This movie came out in 1991. 
What and of course, happened? that was that's around the heyday of the Chris Reeves Superman movies, right? Yep, yep. Superman was still uh, big and in vogue. There hadn't really been like a a viable we hadn't contender yet. We haven't gotten to Superman three or four or Supergirl yet, so you know. Yeah, those were like right around the corner, but <laughs> still kind of riding high. And Superman two, you know, has its flaws, but it's still still pretty popular. And you have Zod and all that stuff. So yeah, so I think and, that the people are now yeah. trying to snipe out like, what are, what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> between nineteen eighty three and nineteen ninety one, there are so many like false starts and stops to making this. Movie. So let me see. I had to write it all down. So stay with me here. So Dave Stevens, the guy who created the Rocketeer, sold the rights to Steve Miner in 1983. But Steve Miner strayed too far from the initial idea of the Rocketeer, and the rights went back to Dan Stevens in 1983. So nothing came of that. Okay. 1985, Stevens gave writers Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo an option on the rights for free. He just gave it to them. Hmm. Them work together to come up with an idea to make it like a low budget black and white movie that was like a one percent homage to old 1930s serials. They were just going to do it, they're going to make it look like an old serial, they're going to like make the budget kind of cheap, which kind of makes sense. It, you know, low, it, it fits exactly what the aesthetic of the character is. Uh, we haven't really described the character much, I realize, but um, I think one look at him. On a poster, and you kind of get the idea. It's a it's a 1930s uh, ace ace pilot who gets a mask and a jetpack, and therefore he becomes a rocketeer. It's it's, it's, it's pretty. It's a low end. It's a low entry point. Um, yeah. it's, it's not high minded at all. He's he's a, he's a discount Iron Man, really. But go on. Yes, that's fair. Ooh, Jimmy, that's a good question. When did when did Iron Man get created? Is that in the 60s? Yeah. Okay. So there you go. Iron Man was like. Like, um, you know, when after Stan Lee made the Fantastic Four, that kind of kicked off Marvel's, right. you know, real universe. I mean, they, they brought back things from prior to the Fantastic Four, but really Fantastic Four is like the yeah, they, point. Like they repurposed and, and then, the torch and stuff, right? Well, yeah, they, they, they brought back the torch, sort of. And of course, Captain America and sure. Namor the Submar- Submariner were all pre- Fantastic Four, and eventually, I think they had like at least cameos from all of those old heroes. They have, you know, they had rights to from like the the timely comics and the Atlas days and stuff like that. But for all intents and purposes, the um, year zero of Marvel is that first Fantastic Four issue, and then like within like the next five years after that, Stanley pretty much created most like the major players from Marvel, like you have X-Men, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, um, what else, the Avengers, mm-hmm. and a lot of the main major Avengers characters like Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Hulk, the Hulk was also- uh, Sure, he was like one of the first ones after Fantastic Four, wasn't he? I believe so. Great. Uh, yeah, great. Well, because- the thing was so popular with the Fantastic Four, they wanted to kind of try to recapture that success. Um, and so that was, that's kind of the, the story of that. But yeah, so Iron Man was around since the 60s. Got it. So yeah, it is sort of like a, yeah, a serials times Iron Man equals the Rocketeer. So that was the plan to make a movie kind of to look just like those things, like Commander Cody, all those things. 
And then uh, then William Deere, who was a director, got assigned to direct it. And then he tossed all that out the window. They're not doing that. (laughs) Don't you love that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Let's see. It's crazy how dysfunctional Hollywood is sometimes. It's a miracle anything gets made. It's a miracle anything is ever good, is the (laughs) lesson I've learned. Um, So from there, yeah. William Deere's whole idea was to kind of like make it a little bit more family friendly. Um, they added, he's the one who added like a Hollywood subplot and added that climactic battle in a Nazi Zeppelin, which, was, which largely remains in the film. And one of his key changes was uh, changing Cliff's girlfriend, whose name I believe might have been. Betty in the comics. Uh, she's an intentional homage to Betty Page, the infamous uh, pinup model, and um, you know, kind of started like a kind of mainstreaming like fetish photography and all that stuff. Pretty good for a comic, not so great for a now kind of more Hollywoodified uh, blockbuster uh, asp- aspirational film. So they changed it, changed her into a Hollywood actress named Jenny. And that is what they ended up with in the finished product. Although Jennifer Connelly kind of does look like Betty Page in this movie. I think she, she could have she could have pulled it off. Um, but like but, it, it, it does seem like even if they they change the nature of the character, they still want the same look. It seems to me. Well, yeah. Well, that's that's the thing about it. I haven't read the uh, actual comics, so know, but it's not like. If she just looks like Betty Page, what difference does it make? It's not like it's not like she's gonna have like a whip or something. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's yeah. just that just felt like people freaking out over nothing. Uh, so they started. When have people ever done that? Uh, in Hollywood, never. They never do that, <laughs> or in life, or in America. Uh, pitches to the studios began in earnest in 1986, and no one wanted it. Uh, of course. Of course, we've had that by 1986. We've had Supergirl and at least Superman three. Yep. And so we've had a bunch of failed superhero movies. Yeah, the main vein has sort of collapsed. Uh, you know, Superman four. In three which... years time too. That's so interesting. See what happens? It's all about the timing a lot of the times. And if they had gotten this off the ground in '83 or '84, I mean, who knows? But um, that just wasn't meant to be. Yeah, because even Superman four uh, was kind of a cheap kind of hack job like intentionally like trying to cut the budget and stuff to get it and get it under like 90 minutes and stuff just so they can make it somewhat profitable that's how far it collapsed and you know dick tracy and batman were still waiting in the wings and uh yeah it was real questions of whether these things could ever be profitable again which is kind of insane to think about so no one wanted a couple of years later batman came out but whatever Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, we, we always knew it was going to be good. Yeah. No one wanted it. Disney finally uh, took a bite because they saw some merchandising potential in it, which I think is a good call. Uh, Disney, yeah. Disney in the 80s, also like not exactly like flush with cash. <laughs> um, their their uh, golden, their second, you know, silver age, I guess, uh, a couple years away still for them. They took a chance on this. And there we began a five-year developmental hell process. Uh, <laughs> Wilson and Paul DeMeo fired and rehired three times. It's, wow. It's like, it's, like his, <laughs> it's like the New York Yankees over here. Uh, 
let's see. Oh, the decision to make it a Walt Disney Pictures release as opposed to like a Touchstone release, which was something that they were considering, uh, meant the movie got allegedly kiddified, quote unquote. That is of the opinion of some people in the production. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I feel like this movie is, is meant for a whole audience, including kids, but there's some really dark shit in this movie. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's as marshmallowed out as I think that they make it sound sometimes. But it's also when it, it's your baby and you're the one who created the character or wrote the script. You know, you're obviously going to think for the most part like where you started out is the way to go. It, you know, and if you've had so many meetings where they say, "Well, tone it down a little bit," you're probably going to say, "Okay, this was kidified." Well, and I guess dealing with Disney was kind of a pain in the ass too because it's not so much that they were like streamlining things. Uh, they kept messing with the screenplay, like they like they would cut dialogue, only to like add it back in three months later, <laughs> and then like whole scenes would get cut, and then like two years later, like the scenes would be back in the script. So I think oh. it was just hard to kind of get your bear. And if you get fired three times over the course of five years by the same employer, I I can sort of see going like, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Uh, so anyway. Oh, one of the major points of contention, which I think was interesting and I think could be something for us to talk about in this episode. Uh, Jenny, the character of Jenny was a major point of contention. Uh, the writers were really concerned that she was becoming too much of a damsel in distress. Uh, whether or not that, is, that was fixed or made worse by the, in the finished product, we will get into. Um, finally, all of this delay caused William Deere to drop out. There was a vacancy. Joe Johnston, who was kind of uh, in-house, he was in-house for Disney. He had just made Honey, I Trunk the Kids. Was a big fan of the character and a big fan of like the 1930s aesthetic. No surprise there. Uh, jumped on it. He said, yeah, yeah, I will do it. Let me do it. He took it. The movie started pre-production in earnest in 1990. And finally, in 1991, the movie was made. That's the story of how we got the Rocketeer, and there's still cast notes and stuff to talk about here and there. But that is that's the story there. And Joe Johnston, I think, is an interesting pick for this. I think the right pick for this movie ultimately. Um, again, this is only his second major film at this time, but before then, he was deeply enmeshed with Lucasfilm and uh, maybe a key contributor beyond some of the uh, bigger names over there, like oh, you know, Lucas. Um, I lost my notes. Hold on. Uh, he was a visual effects artist for the first two installments of the Star Wars trilogy, as well as Raiders of the Lost Ark. In fact, he won a Best Visual Effects Oscar for Raiders, so he's an Oscar winner as well. Thank you very much. Uh, he was the art director for Return of the Jedi and Temple of Doom. I mean, let's see, the list goes on and on. He did the effects illustrations and design for the original Battlestar Galactica series. Very hugely innovative art designer. I mean, the guy... The guy changed Hollywood, and that was before he even took the uh, director's chair. So I think he was a, almost overqualified. So it's funny that he was like this pinch hitter for this movie. That is interesting. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, it kind of makes sense, because I do feel like this movie has kind of an iconic design to it. That's probably like maybe the most memorable part about the whole thing is how it looks, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't know that about Joe, Joe Johnson either. And so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Even with his other movies, like Honey, Like Kids, you know, that has a really great 
set design to it. I yes. Think. Yes. Oh, I absolutely agree. I haven't seen that movie in years, but yeah, it sticks in mind is like the giant ants and like all the picnic food and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's the story of the Rocketeer, and um, I can keep going. I can keep. I can keep blabbing. I can do the uh, cast notes right now too, and then get in the general. Yeah, thoughts. let's because this. I didn't know who any of these people were when I watched it as a kid. But of course. You weren't a big Alan Arkin of, fan at five? I wasn't. Uh, oh, interesting. But outside of like the main the main guy, this has an incredible cast. Oh, I mean this the, the opening credits start and it's just yeah, you get like a name you don't really recognize. Although he was in the eighties, he was a bigger name than he kind of was now. And of course we're talking about uh, Billy Campbell, who plays the Rocketeer, Cliff Secord. Uh, kind of a controversial choice. He was handpicked by Joe Johnston. Uh, Disney really wanted a A-lister for the part, which I guess makes sense in a way. I, I kind of I tend to disagree with that stuff, but I get it. Um, they wanted the, here's here's a list of names that could have played the Rocketeer if you're ready for this. Um, okay. Kevin Costner, Matthew Modine, Johnny Depp. Dennis Quaid, Emilio Estevez, Vincent D'Onofrio, Bill Paxton, and of course, since it's a movie made in the 80s and 90s, uh, Kurt Russell. Was all, all of them read for the part <laughs> at one point or another. That's interesting. You know, normally I'm kind of in the mind of like, your main character shouldn't have had to be a, a lister, but I didn't really like his performance in this movie. No, so he is the one... He is the one flaw. Um, not that he's like, he's not atrocious. He's not bad. But we talked about with Superman. There was sort of this, I mean, they read every single person on the face of the planet for that role. I mean, I think literally, didn't they like run, didn't they read someone's like dentist for <laughs> Superman at one point? I think so. Or something like that. Yeah. And they kind of landed on this theater actor. Who of course, we all know is Christopher Reeve now. He's one of the most famous people in in Hollywood by the, when it all said and done, but he was kind of a nobody. But they surrounded him by a bunch of huge heavy hitters. I mean, Marlon Brando, like you know, Glenn Ford, like Margot Kidder. These people were really well established in 1978, and I think that the, that's a good template to work off of because you can kind of become like this kingmaker with your film, it's like and introducing your new favorite actor. <laughs> Um, right. surrounded by all these major talents but the flip the catch to that is they have to be really good i don't think that billy right. campbell is really good he's no. fine he's he's fine if he's a supporting character yeah if he, was like, if he, had, if he had like a smaller role as like the rocketeer's friend or something like that he could be kind of charming maybe yeah but there's a lot of heavy lifting here i don't i just I don't know that he's up to it. I mean, his big thing before this was he played the part of Luke Fuller on Dynasty. And I can't, I, not having watched Dynasty, I can't tell you if that's a major role or not. <laughs> um, I kind of hope it's not. But, um, well, and also the heart of this movie lays with, you know, the Cliff and Jenny's relationship. I mean, the movie does try to make, you know, do the work on that. I and mean, it's to the film's credit that they never skip on that part but i don't think that their chemistry is there i don't think and jennifer connelly is also like fine she's like not 
she's not brilliant, but she is good. She is solid. She's at least better than he is. <laughs> but actually, I actually really like Jennifer Connelly in this movie. Um, yeah, she's good. I think there are other people who like do my eye more, but like she gets it done, and like I, right. you know, and that there's nothing better. There's no, no shame in that. But I think that the stuff with them together kind of falls flat, which is ironic because they dated for five years after this. Like they met on the set of this movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Could have fooled me. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's again similar to the Flash. It's hard to like not. Not be a little jaded that Kurt Russell didn't end up with this role. He would be great. He would, yeah. Oh, Flash Gordon. Oh, I mean, Kurt Russell is Flash. He would have been so. perfect for Flash Gordon. I mean, he would have been really good here too. Johnny Depp, I actually think, would have been really good as well. I think in nineteen. I think in nineteen ninety one. In nineteen ninety, that would make some sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not now. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, a couple of these are a little. I mean, D'Onofrio is a, it's kind of a strange choice. Yeah, but uh, something to keep in mind is like Vincent D'Onofrio looked a lot different back in 1991 than he did here. I know it's easier. Do you think of him as like the kingpin or like Men in Black now, (laughs) or even like in Full Metal Jacket? But have you ever ever seen him Adventures in Babysitting? Never. He's in that, and he looks more the part there than how you think of him now. You know, got it. I bet he read like right after Full Metal Jacket. That's my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. When was Full Metal Jack was like '87, wasn't it? Something like that. Oh yeah, maybe it was a. It had been a little later. Um. Yeah, yeah, '87. Yeah, Full Metal Jack okay. was '87. But you're yeah, yeah. you're right. <laughs> um, yeah, but he's he's the one kind of. I think he's what keeps it from. I always feel bad. Like I always. It's not that anyone is going to. <laughs> care, but I always imagine like being part of like a project that had some legs and you know kind of this moment in time that changed your life for a while and then you listen to like someone talking about it 30 years later and going like yeah you were bad in it <laughs> you're the one reason no one you know like yeah, yeah it's like oh man but it's, you have to wonder if the you almost want to roll the dice and see if uh any of these other people have taken the role if that one have uh, improved it at all i, I think it's i think it's worth doing for some reason the one that's taken out of my head right now is dennis quaid and I'm not he, sure he would have been good in it or not, actually. I think he would look the part. I still he would have looked the part. What? what know, something what, about what, Dennis Quaid. Yeah. Which is something about Dennis Quaid, like, I, I never have fully liked him as, like, an A-lifter star. That's interesting. Um, he is someone I forget that I like a lot. Like, <laughs> I see him and stuff, and I'm like, wow, he's, he's really good. But, um... It's always in stuff that like the other name on here is Kevin Costner. It almost feels like Dennis Quaid appears in movies that Kevin Costner like turns down or something like that. We, we couldn't get yeah. Costner, so we got we got Dennis Quaid. He's always in stuff that like, doesn't sound that interesting to me. Yeah, I, I do know. like him. He he's fine. This is a really weird tangent we're going on, but yeah, he's fine. But like, I don't know something. Every time I watch a movie he's in, I like he's fine, and I can't like point to anything where I'm like, he wasn't good in this, but I never really feel it. I feel like he he kind of just plays himself in different situations. There are certain actors, and I don't know if I have like a name for this theory or it's more of just an observation. Like there are certain actors that like I like like in my heart. Like I never I I can't figure out like what the 
what's the thing I saw him in that I liked him in so much? Because I see him in stuff. I'm like, hmm, he was surprisingly kind of bad in this. But he did it like 10 times. <laughs> I was like that with uh, like, I feel like I'm like that with you know, go on. I was like, the, the name that came to mind uh, for some reason, like Jamie Foxx. So I know I had like a whole like TV career and all that stuff. But like, I think I just liked him from like being around and like being a presence on like talk shows and stuff. And then I see him in things. I'm like, hmm, he was okay. But wasn't, <laughs> I liked him in so much. <laughs> and like, I can't source that. I think he, it's just him being a personality. I think with Jamie Foxx, we're on a weird tangent. I think it was Jamie Foxx. He does. <laughs> He does certain things really well, but there was a time Hollywood thought he could do anything. Right. Because he was Ray Charles and did right. a good job in that movie. So, mm-hmm. you, so like, like, cause like when you look at him, like, when you look at him, like, in Amazing Spider-Man 2, he's terrible. But then when you look at him in, like, Spider-Man No Way Home, he's great. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, he was terrible in um, Amazing Spider-Man 2. He's terrible and, in that. I mean, admittedly, there was a bit of a course correction in No Way Home, but they course corrected the character to... To kind of Jamie Foxx's wheelhouse. Yeah. And again, he's he is fine in that. And compared to what he was doing in Mason Spider Man 2, it's he's Olivier. It's it, um, <laughs> well, like, he was, yeah. He was in a supporting role too, which allowed him, I think, to kind of yeah. be a little more zanier. So that's what maybe that's what it is. If it's not like a project like specifically meant to build around him. Um a supporting role is what's best. And that's kind of how I feel about um, Billy Campbell. Outside, maybe don't build anything around him either. Don't <laughs> just like don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, he didn't get a lot of opportunities after this, did he? Because his career kind of sputters. Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if I have a whole lot of notes about what what he did after the fact. I know that. Hold on. I don't think there. I mean, looks looking at his Wikipedia page, it kind of looks like he just has done. Made a career off of just being in TV shows. Yeah, he's still working, but I don't think he ever had like a major role like this again. That could have been like he was a regular in the forty four hundred. On the the, the killing, yeah. Um, But yeah, right. So he's just kind of like doing different stuff. I mean, he has a decent career, right? You know. He's not, out of, he's, he's not out of work or anything, but no, I think there's a but reason you, why he never got another chance to do like the superhero thing ever again. Um, exactly. And maybe... Well, really uh, never, he never got a chance again to be a, a lead in a movie. Doesn't really seem like it. Which again, I don't know that he was that bad that like his whole career should have been poisoned, but it's just, it's just, it's just how shit goes sometimes in Hollywood. It's a cruel business, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting, again, looking at his Wikipedia page right now, he lost out to the role of Commander Riker on um, on Star Trek. Oh, geez, John yeah. Jonathan Frakes, and like Frakes has been living off that role for the past the thirty plus yeah. years. I mean, he's, he's still playing it. I mean, it's, talk about roles you didn't want to miss out on. Like, oh, I know. But you know, uh, also consider like what if this had hit? I mean, you just never know with these things. Like for a couple of years, well, that's, that's next gen, right? That's next gen, and, and of course, he didn't like choose this over next gen. He just missed. Yeah, he just didn't get it. He just didn't get it. Yeah. Um, but man, like if I'm if I'm Billy Campbell, like I'm looking at that, I'm like oh, saying I'm like my own ass. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's also there's a parallel universe out there where like next gen gets canceled like two seasons. Because it took a while for that show to 
kind of catch on, right? Yeah, I mean, it's possible it, it, gets, sure. it gets gets canned two years in, and then Jonathan Frakes is the Rocketeer, and he's appearing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe now or something. You know, <laughs> I just you just never know. Like, yeah, maybe, maybe. Although, you know, about that, you know, the first couple, the first season of Next Gen isn't very good, like in my opinion and many people's opinion. But it didn't necessarily do that bad ratings-wise. And I think that's something to keep in mind when you hear, because a lot of people were bitching about it at the time. Like, it was a very negative fan reaction in, 19, I think, 1987 when it came out. But, like, people were watching. Like, they were making their money. And it got time to improve and get better. And that's the important and, part. <laughs> right, right. And, well, and, like, people forget about that these days. Like, you don't, you don't like something. We have to get rid no of it. No one can like it. We've got to go on, go on, yeah, dunk it. You gotta fire everyone who's involved. You know what I mean? Like it's so Especially when I you think just... about like by those principles, like we'd have like one season of Cheers and like four episodes of Seinfeld and then that's it. And then those are like the two like two of the most influential T V shows ever. Right, exactly. And I think so I think it's okay to say I don't like something, but I feel like the the wildly negative reactions we get to things these days is so God, imagine, imagine they had Twitter during the first year of Next Gen. <laughs> yeah, it would have been terrible. This is an abomination. Mean... <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so Billy Campbell's, this, this, this was kind of his career peak, but someone whose career, I think, arguably, her peak was yet to come. We've already mentioned her, Jennifer Connelly. Um, at this point, her biggest claim to fame, then, now, is it, it, Labyrinth. More than likely, um, I think if you pulled most people and said, "Give me a Jennifer Connelly movie," that's probably the answer they'd give. I think you're right. Uh, but some of her big stuff was still yet to come. Uh, I think 2000 or so kind of is like the second second wave of her career. That's like Requiem for a Dream. Uh, I believe she got an Oscar nomination for a Beautiful Mind, which is a movie that I remember really liking as a teenager, and I've been like terrified to <laughs> revisit it because I'm sure it's going to suck. <laughs> Um, well, it, it probably won't suck, but it's not as good as we thought it was when we saw it. But now no. it's probably not as bad as people say it is. I'm, I'm sure it's just like middle of the road, like kind of milk toasts. And of course, we'll have our chances to talk about Jennifer Connelly again. Uh, she will appear a couple more times in this podcast series, uh, 2003's Hulk. And as the voice of the Spider-Man suit in Spider-Man Homecoming. Was it just Homecoming? Was she... Did she voice it again in any other? I don't, I don't know. They kind I don't of moved away from that. But I, I, right. Um, um, so I think it was just homecoming. All right. Well, there you go. Um, again, it may sound like earlier, like I was knocking her. Um, she, she is good. She is solid. And I think that she fits the role well. And actually, she appears in one of my categories uh, that we'll be talking about later on in this episode in a positive way. Uh, and she, and she, you know, she looks gorgeous. She looks the part of like an aspiring Hollywood starlet. Uh, I think she fits the aesthetic of this movie really well. Um, I just, she I does. wanted more. I had to wonder if, if she had a better scene partner, if she would be able to shine more. Cause she has a scene with Timothy Dalton. And I think she's actually very good. Yeah, I agree. Um, seeing with Timothy Dalton, you can tell he had, he's having a great time with this movie. Mm. Oh my God! Well, uh, I think all that James Bond because, like, you know, between Flash Gordon and this movie, he did his run as James Bond. Right. I feel like that's giving him like the second wind all of a sudden. For sure, and well, and also this this is kind of a he gets the 
because he's kind of playing Errol Flynn here, right? Um, yes. Like an evil Errol Flynn. Which That's is kind of like a, an evil James Bond. A which is such too. a great idea. I love making like this Hollywood star, um, just like the villain. I think it's such a funny idea. Like it's really clever. I agree. I, I think the Hollywood stuff really works with this movie. Um, I'm going to say this. Timothy Dalton, underrated James Bond. I don't know if you've seen either of his two movies. They're not well loved, but. Which is a shame. Yeah, no, I, I need to get my Bond knowledge in. I think I mentioned this, I probably mentioned this in the Flash Gordon episode. I know if, I've seen a handful of Sean Connery. I've seen a handful of uh, uh, Daniel Craig and a couple of the Pierce Brosnans. But my Bond knowledge is not what it should be. It's probably my number one like pop culture blind spot. Hmm. And hopefully, Maybe. hopefully by the time this comes out, I'll be working on that a little bit. But... We could do our own little series. That's true. We could do a series on Bond. That'd be a lot of fun. And yeah. I, I, um, I've seen maybe half. Okay. Um, and some of them, it's been a while. So I've, I've seen all the Brosnan ones in theaters, but I haven't rewatched any besides Golden Eye. Mm-hmm. seen all the Conneries. I've seen some of the Roger Moore ones, but probably less than half of the Roger Moore ones. I see. Um, I haven't seen the most recent Craig yet, unfortunately. I need to watch that. No, I've been saving that because it's like, it'd be like, because I want to watch it, but it's like, nah, you gotta, this is your incentive to get through. <laughs> but of course, yourself what's, what's going to happen is it's going to be 10 years from now and I still want to watch it. <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I will have punished nobody but myself. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Dalton seems like he'd be like a perfect fit for Bond. So is it just like the material is lacking? Do people not like him specifically? Like, what's the deal there? Some people don't like him. My dad's opinion of him, and I think He's not necessarily wrong about the read, but he's a little too cold okay. of an actor. You know, like Connery, like James Bond is kind of a cold character, but there's, there's a charm to him. There's, yeah. There is, there is like a sort of weird warmth. Like that's kind of what's cool about him. Like he has like, he's cold hearted, but he has kind of a warm presence. I know exactly what you mean. But Dalton doesn't quite get. Yeah. Get he doesn't really have heart. a warm presence, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm okay with it because it's a different take on the character, in my opinion. You yeah, know, you can't just do what the next, what the last person did. You know, you got to bring your own thing to it. Right, and and so I think Dalton plays into his strength. He's a little more of a cold-hearted spy, I think, which which I kind of like. I think he's like I said. I think he's underrated. You know, not necessarily my favorite Bond, but I like him. Fair enough, and he's definitely my favorite. Uh... <laughs> Errol Flynn-esque villain, uh, his name, of course. Neville, Sin- <laughs> Neville Sinclair. He is absolutely my favorite Neville Sinclair. Uh, there's <laughs> no equal. Uh, another heavy that uh, I enjoyed seeing is Paul Sorvino. Um, yeah. Uh, Eddie Valentine, yeah. Um, he was like, I, I think this is where having really good cast helps because his character on paper is like nothing. It's nothing, yeah. Um, but just seeing him, he's not, not like he's doing anything really but he's just you like you just like seeing the guy <laughs> yeah and he just he fits this role like a glove i mean this is like mm-hmm. he, this is what he was born to play yep this is the year after goodfellas um i think by the time this released he's be starting his short run on law and order um yeah a good uh yeah the turn of the 90s was a good good period for uh the father of mira mira sorvino uh, Paul was, um, and oh, and another uh, gangster. Uh, all the bad guys are fun in this. Uh, I didn't really know mm-hmm. who he was, but he's a fun person to watch. Uh, Lothar, the guy who kind of looked like a uh, 
Dick Tracy villain to me. He had like this, this you know, like this, this this giant long face and like this long nose and everything like that. Uh, do you remember that character at all? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, Tiny Ron Taylor, who was a former draft pick for the Seattle SuperSonics back in the seventies. He's a tall dude here, so that I can see that. Yeah, I mean, he, NBA career didn't work out. He did some time in the ABA. Uh, I think there's probably some novelty to that. And then pivoted to acting, changed his name to Tiny Ron, the suggestion of his acting <laughs> teacher, um, which was some sage advice. I love that. Because you think True. about acting teachers, it's like, all right, now we're going to learn the Stanislavski method. And like, okay, now, you know, what's your motivation? I like the ones going, like, you just change your name to something interesting. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a great, great advice. Yeah. So, yeah, he's great here. Um, he had been in Roadhouse in the Naked Gun slash the Police Squad TV show. I don't know if you'd seen any of those, but he's the... Uh, I've seen the Roadhouse. Okay. Um, in the Naked Gun movies and the, the Police Squad show, he's like the giant cop who's, who's like the upper half is always out of frame. He's so dang tall. Um, that's uh, kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's great here. Uh, and of course, we mentioned... Uh, Howard Hughes already. Um, this movie does have a supporting role for the man, the myth, the legend, Terry O'Quinn. Yeah, we, Always... should, we should mention we're both huge Lost fans. And so anytime I see Terry O'Quinn, uh, I'm, I get I'm like, I'm like the DiCaprio meme of him in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm like snapping at the TV. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm, hooting, I'm hooting and hollering. I'm firing off guns like Yosemite Sam. Yeah, and look, he's great. We mentioned he's not really doing like a Howard Hughes impression, but who cares? <laughs> he has such great like screen presence. I, it's honestly kind of surprising to me. So because he had a decent career. Oh yeah, oh yeah, for I mean, a long he, time. He had done he had done the stepfather movies before this. Uh, yeah, the JJ. Yeah, he hadn't entered the JJ Abrams machine yet. So like Alias and Lost were still to come. But this guy should be like in every every project, right? This guy. Well, this, he should, this guy should never have like, a break. Yeah, I feel like. It's it's so weird he didn't kind of become more of a that guy than he did because he has such great screen presence and he fills that kind of role so well. I don't know. I think I really think he's a fantastic actor. And he's also he's a, he's the rare actor who I feel like age doesn't really affect much of anything. So you see young Terry O'Quinn. It's just current Terry O'Quinn, but with like a mustache. Yeah, <laughs> pretty like, much. His, his Maybe a little more hair. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, he looks like exactly the same to me. He does. Oh, he man. didn't seem like he aged in 15 years. No. Yeah, man. Maybe maybe this should have been a Lost podcast. I'm thinking to watch that. Um, I'm always done with Chronologically Lost, which is a fan edit of Lost. So everything's put in chronological order. Do you, do you uh, really recommend it? If you're like a huge Lost fan, I think so. I think it's interesting to see, see things put in, in chronological order. It kind of like Kind of clarifies some things, kind of makes it like the timelines like, wait, that happened a lot faster than maybe it should have. Um, <laughs> when you look at things happening in real time, but mm-hmm. um, like, well, I don't want to say any examples, but yeah, if you're, if you're a huge Lost fan, you know, if you can go and if you're really interested, you go and find it. It's not like a better way to watch, it's not like better than the actual show, I don't think, right? Uh, but it's just a, a different way and maybe a somewhat less confusing way to watch it. So, uh, someone should slip in like one scene of him in the Rocketeer in there somewhere, and just like, no, that's part of it. That was one of the special. Features. That was one of the sub- that was one of the webisodes. Uh, <laughs> the mobisodes, yeah. <laughs> the mobisodes. Okay, 
here's here's my pact with you. We are going to do like a lost. We're we're going to do a lost podcast series, but it's only going to be about the Mobisodes. <laughs> we're going okay to do, do thirteen episodes on the Mobisodes. We're going to talk an hour about like a five minute. <laughs> that, like, are, are you even good? Some of them are like ninety seconds. <laughs> yeah, some of them aren't very good. <laughs> I mean, you have, to, you have to watch them on your Verizon flip phone. They can't, they can't be that long. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, chronologically lost comes up the, uh, like the chronological cut of Memento. Like, it's good to watch like, after you've already seen it. <laughs> like, yeah, never, never would I recommend watching Chronologically Lost the first time you're watching the show. <laughs> you know, there's a name I skipped over here. I can't believe it. Alan Arkin. We already mentioned him. But he's great as a TV. Is that his name in this? PD, yeah. PD. I mean, look, everyone's seen him in at least something. Uh, he is great. I think he fits the aesthetic of this just as well as Timothy Dalton, but like in another way. Like, I think Timothy Dalton kind of gets like the debonair style of the Hollywood stuff. And I think Alan Arkin really gets like that grounded kind of like, hey, come on, you knucklehead, kind of like more grounded, like flyboy stuff. Uh, I think he's, I think he's great. <laughs> um, honestly, like, with with kind of how man like kind of average Billy was named Billy um, Billy Campbell Campbell with kind of how like boring Billy Campbell is in the main role if if it wasn't on the caliber of Alan Arkin with this role I think the movie half the movie completely falls flat I think you're right I think he carries all of his stuff he he carries all of his scenes with Billy Campbell which is a good chunk of this movie um, and. So that's, that was some heavy lifting, I think, by Alan, Alan yeah. Arkin. I think to the Clint, point where, like, he's an MVP contention for me for this. Oh, movie. I have several, but he's yeah, he's on my he's on my he's on my uh, ranking board for sure. Um, yeah, I think that takes me back to Jennifer Connelly. Here's the thing, and this is again, this is no disrespect to Jennifer Connelly, but Alan Arkin can lift kind of an average average to poor actor like billy campbell is so like the point where like those scenes are then together and like pv and cliff are like the second biggest relationship here first would be cliff right. and jenny right uh he really makes him seem like something jennifer connelly can't do that agreed and of course she's also very young here so maybe yes i bet jennifer connelly you know if she did another decade she might have been able to like you know help him shine too not that it's her job but um, you know, Alan Arkin just kind of has, yeah, he'd been in Hollywood for like forever. I mean, he was working since like the 50s or 60s. Um, and if you're looking for a good young Alan Arkin movie, um, 1966s or 1967s, I'll wait until dark. Um, Audrey Hepburn plays like a blind woman who, um, who gets her. <laughs> gets her home invaded by a very creepy Alan Arkin and they kind of play like this cat and mouse game. Um, he's, he's got these little dark shades on. He's just a scuzzy guy. He's great. This is before he enters his like cranky grandpa mode. He used to be a very <laughs> like intense figure. So like this Halloween, uh, pop that on. If you want like a nice little thrill ride. Interesting. I've never yeah. seen that. I'll yeah, it's up. a trip. Yeah, it's a trip, and all you out there too. I, you better. I'm gonna know if you don't watch it. So, <laughs> um, uh, so those are the main. I mean, this, there's other people in the cast, but those are like the main heavy hitters, all right? Of um, course, do you you of course noticed our a little cameo. I don't know if cameo is the right word because this is at the beginning of her career. But Jan from The Office, Malara. <gasps> oh yes, Malora Harden. Malora Harden. 
has a small, very small part in this movie. And it's always, always fun going back, watching these movies and seeing, seeing those actors. Yeah. It was a trip that her, yeah. <laughs> Melora Hardin in this movie. Um, it's kind of funny to me for two reasons. One, she looks exactly the same. She does. That's another, that's another actor who just has not aged a, a bit in 30 years. So God bless her. And two, it's funny to see her here because she plays like this nightclub like singer, right? Like, right, yeah. Her, her only role is just singing at the club. To, to the point, I actually wish she would have been in it. She has like two songs. I, I was kind of hoping she would give, they would give her a couple more. Like almost like take on this like not Greek chorus, but I wish like the songs had a little bit more to do. I mean, maybe they did, but like I almost felt like they're setting her up to being like this. Like her songs were like a commentary on what was going on. Um, but that didn't quite materialize. But that's okay because her voice is great, which takes me to my second observation, which is funny because her biggest role is a Jan in the Office who uh, doesn't and she sings here and there a little bit, and what what she does sing is bad. <laughs> uh, she famously um, sings like a little lullaby to her baby i think i might be messing that up and she also sings along to her uh assistant hunter's love song to, uh, to her. When they I couldn't get that out of my head watching those scenes. It's, 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 it's so weird because obviously at the time she was, you know, upcoming actress who hadn't had much to her, but now like I see her and immediately like it takes me out of the movie. Take me by the hand. Yeah, all that stuff. That one night. One night. <laughs> yeah, she does not sing that in this, although that's another that funny, would have been amazing. Another funny edit for yeah. It would have been it would have been jaw dropping if she had sung a song that hadn't been written for another seventeen years. <laughs> um yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've forgotten about her, but yeah, she's she's great. Yeah, just little stuff like that. I think that's why overall, going into like just overall thoughts that we hadn't talked about yet. I think that's why this movie feels very comfortable because it's a bunch of actors that you've seen in other things for the most part and playing their parts well, again, for the most part, vast majority. And I think there's this comfort. And for me, I'm discovering it for the first time. It feels like something that I should have seen by now. I think that there's kind of a thrill in that of like, uh, this feels like something I've grown up with because I've seen all these people do other stuff. And it feels very familiar to me because we'll get into this with lasting effect on the genre. Uh, This, I think when Joe Johnson got the Captain America one job, he went right back to his notes. They took for this and just did it again. (laughs) It seemed to me. Definitely a, a big piece of it. Absolutely. So that felt very familiar. I mean, even down to like I mean, uh, final bu- final fight in like a, like a zeppelin, <laughs> or I mean, that was, that it was wasn't a, a zeppelin, but a, an aircraft. Yeah, yeah aircraft um, is a better term for it. Oh, absolutely. And even like the you know Howard Stark character. Obviously, Howard Stark is kind of based off of Howard Hughes. Yep. But you know that's here. You know, um, the Peggy Carter and. 
Jennifer Connelly's character has share some similarities in this movie too. Yep. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, he went back. Oh, maybe this movie is why they hired him. I don't know. I was gonna say I would because it's also. I mean, I know Disney. I think. Um, I think absolutely. Like when they were trying to decide who to direct Captain America: First Avenger, and we'll probably talk more about this when we get there. This movie had to be like one of the reasons they went with Joe Johnson. Has to be. It'd be a major coincidence for it not to be. I think. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because this was such a box office failure, apparently, like a famous flop. But yeah, you know, fifteen years later, has such a good reputation and well liked that it's enough to get him another job. Well, again, I think that's just a matter of, and maybe they can look at that and go like, maybe he wasn't the reason why it failed. It could have been, you know, the development hell that it was in, or it could have been the choice of lead. Uh, maybe we have a better lead now with Chris Evans, which they were correct but also kind of a risky choice at the time. He wasn't a nailister for sure. I mean, he had done no. things, but, you know, he, uh, yeah, he was a risky choice at the time. Yeah, I'm looking at... Rocketeer made 46, like basically like 47 million, a little under 50, uh, against a budget of about 40 million. So, like, it technically made money, but I think, again, in the wake of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Batman, Batman. They're, looking for, they're looking for bigger pop. You know, bigger yeah. ROI than you. You want to double your budget, you know, Absolutely. like easily. And they barely made a profit on that one. So, and maybe if this came out in '84 and the standards weren't so high, uh, maybe it, maybe it wouldn't have mattered. Maybe it could have been a comfortable mid mid range success. But that's just wasn't the makeup of Hollywood anymore. And uh, the Rocketeer is kind of a victim of that. It seemed to me, mm-hmm. which is a shame because the Rocketeer hasn't made a whole lot of impact as a character. Uh, beyond that, obviously, there was plans for a trilogy. It didn't pan out. <laughs> they, didn't, they never made another one. Uh, there's, Wait, a no. car- there's a cartoon on Disney Junior or something, I think. I did see that one, but I don't know anything about that. Okay. Uh, um, but I don't think that cartoon has any, any... Yeah, like that came out in 2019. Yeah, and that's like a that stars like a like a little girl who's Kit Secord and who finds like the uh, the jetpack and the rocketeer and all that stuff. The rock, don't find the rocketeer like like the helmet. I mean, right, right. There were plans at one point to include the rocketeer in uh, the first episode of What If Marvel Studios What If. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah, but they that didn't pan out. There is a planned reboot slash sequel that's been being, that's been worked on since 2016. History kind of repeating itself there a little bit. <laughs> but um, you know what? Yeah, I didn't need a sequel to this. No, the story was over. Yeah, I mean it's, it, it. It wrapped up. You know, the character went on a journey. He didn't need a jetpack anymore. This was. I didn't need a sequel. This is good. Mm-hmm. Now, if this plan, if this plan sequel comes out, which I have to, I do have to mention, is being produced in part by Blake Griffin and Ryan Khalil. Uh, This would be a a black female air pilot finding the rocket after Cliff Secord goes missing, and it being set during the Cold War. That's been morphed into a proposed revival, being worked on by. Uh, I'm going to mess up his name, but he played Martin Luther King Jr. in uh, the movie Selma. David Oyewelo. 
I know who you're talking about. Yeah, and I, basically, it'd be like a um, a, a Tuskegee Airman finding the uh, rocket, uh, the rocket jetpack and the uh, helmet. It'll be called you the Return of the Rocketeer, and uh, that could work. I can see that working. It could work. I would actually rather not even have Cliff in it in like a major role because this is like I, I have the same problem with Blade Runner 2049, which I haven't seen. Okay, well, I won't go into it, but like I, I would have liked it better without Harrison Ford in it. Like Harrison Ford was great in the first one as Decker. He wasn't even bad in this one, but like I, I felt like Decker's story was over in the original Blade Runner. And like, I liked writing Gosling stuff and the new Blade Runner. And like, I just didn't, Yeah. I don't know how to, yeah, I just, I just didn't like the, you don't have, it's okay to like take, have another story take place in the same universe. You don't have to like bring back all the characters. I agree. I mean, I think there's a reason why maybe the most successful in the eyes of the public <laughs> Uh, Star Wars, like Disney Star Wars movie is Rogue One, which doesn't star any of the original characters. <laughs> right. I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, or even like Star Trek Next Gen, right? I mean, they had cameos from the sure. original cast. But like... It, it lived and died on its own for the most exactly. part. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so let's see. Yeah. So that, that those are the cast notes. And I think kind of got into general thoughts throughout all of that. Are there any thoughts that you had on it? Uh, before we jump into the general categories, because um, it's, 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 yeah. it's a fun movie. It's really yeah, fun. I liked it. Yeah, it, it's what you know. It's it fulfills its goal of being fun family entertainment, right? It's nothing heavy. Nazis are bad. Nazis are Hollywood's favorite favorite punching bag because they're, they, 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 they were should, pretty they fucking evil. Be, yeah, yeah like, I mean. Like, Historically speaking, they were really fucking awful. Like, uh, that's not yep. a, really a bold statement. So, you know, uh, but also they work well for villains in movies like this where you can just have like a super evil person, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. just make him a Nazi is easy, but it works. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of a fun family movie and it, I like it a lot. Yeah, and super well directed and mm-hmm. the cinematography is great and the art, art design and art direction is also really, really good. Um, you can tell Joe Johnston or whoever at this point. I mean, I, I like to think most of the look is because of Johnston, a guy whose frame of reference is art and design. A lot of this movie looks great. <laughs> a lot of the sets uh, seem period accurate, but with like a touch of whimsy. Um, you get that 30s serial um, kind of homage throughout without feeling... It's not plotted like a 30s serial, which is very good news for the movie because, um, you know, some of those plots were not great. Yeah. <laughs> um, more television-esque than anything else. Yeah, it, again, I think if you just... It's, there's, like, no movie in the 80s and 90s that wouldn't have been improved by just replacing the lead with Kurt Russell, <laughs> I don't think. So, yeah, that's that, that kind <laughs> I mean, of feels like... That's a, true. Yeah. But we wouldn't, be, we, we wouldn't be talking about this if we were happy with Bill Campbell's performance you know that it's true so yeah that's the thing uh the, the fantasy casting thing often is a fruitless game because like we'll just never know i mean i don't know uh right. what if kurt russell was awful in it <laughs> and like I mean, the, only, the only thing i could the only thing i could think is like sometimes i think actors don't share the screen well mm-hmm. like i'm i'm not sure kevin cosner would have shared the screen well with alan arkin 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I with you on that. It's a little like when Tom Cruise uh, pretty famously was up for the role of Iron Man like a long time ago and like, yeah, he could have done it, but I think that would have swallowed up the rest of the movie in a pretty uh, different way. Um, so yeah, who knows? Maybe I, yeah, Costner is a, yeah, well, <laughs> we don't have to talk much about Costner. He's fine. He's, he's, a, he's a good actor, but he's just a little full of himself. He <laughs> is, and I, and I do think, oh, no, no, I agree, and that's kind of what I mean. Like, yeah. when, when, you know, part of acting, of course, I'm not an actor. I know you, you have, but like part of acting is yeah. like, is how you interact with the other actors around you. And I feel yeah. like I mean, Osner yeah. all he cares about is what he's saying and doing. And he, I feel like yeah. he's not always responding to what the actors around him are doing. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, the old adage is acting is reacting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Costner doesn't do that. <laughs> or, I mean, yeah. no, or maybe not as well as he should, given his, his status. No, I think he's very aware that he's an A-list movie star. And, um, right. Instead of just doing the thing. But yeah, uh, Tom, yeah, yeah, I, I, even Tom Cruise, I think, is a better reactor than Costner. But he is. Yeah. I, I think Tom Cruise gets a bad rap because of the terrible organization he's part of. Being but, really fucking um, weird. <laughs> and being fucking, really fucking weird. And so that's fair. But I think, you know, he, I think Tom Cruise is actually a great, like, blockbuster movie star. Yeah, um, it's often been said, but I think it's true. He's probably the last one we have. Probably. Maybe, least, maybe Clooney. Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't I think, yeah. Much. Clooney, he's made his money, and he only acts when he has to now, I think. Like, sure. Even then, like I feel like he was more dramatic than he was action. That's fair. You know? wow. we'll, well, we'll have our opportunity to talk about Clooney. I was going to say, we'll, yeah, we, will, <laughs> we will litigate that soon enough. Uh, well, we can just jump into our our superlatives here and then we can rate the movie we'll see what uh, our celebrity critic has to say and then we can we can blast on out of here if we want to <laughs> uh yeah just to kind of set the table here a little bit this is where we give out this is where we give out forward some superlatives pretty close to what we do at our end of season wrap-ups with our doctor who and our superhero serials but we do this for uh uh each movie individually as well and uh well, I don't want to give them away. Uh, why don't we start with? We start with best use of superpowers. It's a part of the Rocketeer we haven't talked much about. He's a pretty lo-fi superhero. He's not really endowed with anything outside of the jetpack and like the mask. I guess he's kind of more Batman-esque in that he's just kind of using the, the suit to enhance what's already there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is. Uh, I'd be curious to know what your uh, what your pick was for this. I don't know. Okay, well, my pick was actually the last we saw of the jetpack. Mm, okay. uh, when he has to give it to Timothy Dalton to, to save Jenny, right? Uh, and so he takes off the the gum, which is kind of a running, running, not joke, but mm-hmm. but thing. I don't know what the right term is. It's a, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a running gag. Yeah. It's a running gag, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, because like, it was his thing. He would put chewed up gum on a plane for good luck. So he put chewed up gum on his rocket pack. And then he got a bullet hole in it. So Alan Arkin put the gum in there to 
plugged a hole, which <laughs> is great movie logic. Um, right, absolutely. Someone's mouth can destroy this thing, but like super hot jet fuel, <laughs> it's resistant to. Um, <laughs> but whatever, it's a movie. I'll, I'll take yeah. it. Yeah, uh, and so like at the end, doesn't bother me at all in this context. No, same, same. Um, and so yeah, he he takes off the gum. He like secretly, right? Takes off the gum, gives it to uh, Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton flies away and blows up. And I, like, <laughs> yeah. I like that as the ending for that character. Yeah, no, it's fitting. Um, uh, I went with I just I kind of like the rocketeer uh, rocketeering through that like that dumb waiter uh, in the restaurant. Do you remember that at all? Mm. Yeah, he's yeah, 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 yeah. Through that, yeah. Uh, I like that too. Because there's something about. Um, you know, obviously the Rocketeer does his best in open skies, right? So something about like mm-hmm. him having to like, navigate, even though you don't really see it, just like the idea of him having to like navigate through like a tight space with the rocket felt very thrilling, even though the, I don't know if the movie made a, as much of it as they, they could have, but uh, I, I, I think that was a very impressive move and a very clever way of... I agree. In fact, I, w- I would argue that the sequence in the restaurant was a better climax than the actual climax we got. It's possible. It's definitely possible. Uh, Moments you wouldn't see today. See, here's the thing. I I could see this movie being made exactly the same way. (laughs) There's nothing objectionable. I think the one thing, I think they wouldn't do 30s Hollywood if they made this now. I think think they'd age it up to the 60s or like 50s Hollywood, I think. Potentially. Um... That's, one about, thing that, that's, that's all I've got for that category. I don't know if this is accurate or not. I agree, because this is a harder one to pick because it's an homage to old cinema, but there wasn't too much in there where you were like, they would never do that today. The only thing that like stuck out to me is like, I'm not sure they would do this today was like, like at the end, you know, the, the mobsters working with, you know, Neville Sinclair and then the mobsters find out he's a Nazi and like turn on him at a point of like patriotic pride. Oh, yeah, right? That's right. That's right. I really don't mind that, but I'm not certain you see that today. No, it, it is kind of funny. That, <laughs> and that kind of reminded me of like a 30s and 40s serial, too. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like, at it the is. end, like Captain America goes, like, buy war bonds or something. Like, <laughs> absolutely. It fits the aesthetic of this movie perfectly. And like I said, I don't, I don't necessarily mind it, but like, I could definitely see that being cut from the script today. I also I also wonder if they'd avoid the implication of a Hollywood star being a Nazi. <laughs> I wonder if they'd, they'd avoid that altogether. Put in the fifties, make him a communist, right? Oh, there you go. Yep. Uh, ooh, yep. Ooh, rocketeer throughout the years. I could see. In that. fact, if they could easily, if they want to include a Hollywood subplot in the proposed sequel, that would be perfect. Yeah. Hope, hope they're out to take Blake Griffin. You taking notes? <laughs> um, let's go with yeah. Well, uh, best line. What do you have for your best line? This is tough because the the script is fine. You know, the script isn't anything memorable. And, sure, and, yeah, I'm with you there. And I was I was kind of um, it's kind of tough to, to pick one, but the. I eventually went with one of the ones that like stuck out in my head the most. And there, there was one or two, but um, after Jenny's been kidnapped by Neville Sinclair, you know, and he kind of like wooed her to kind of like get her information about Cliff and everything. So she's like, everything about you was a lie. And Neville Sinclair 
imperfect, like over the top acting by um, Timothy Dalton says, it wasn't lies, Jenny. It was acting. <laughs> it was acting. That was on my short list as well. But I went with another Timothy Dalton line. Mm. Uh, he's kind of he's screaming at some of his compatriots there. And he goes, uh, I think, it, I think it, this line really shows the character's uh, specific type of vanity. He goes, uh, uh, who are they going to believe? A cheap crook or the number three box office star in America? <laughs> I know. Who do you think they believe? A cheap crook or the number three box office star in America? I agree. That was good. Yeah. Another one I liked was Alan Arkin, like after he puts on like the, the helmet. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. He's like, how do I look? Like a hood ornament. <laughs> that's pretty good. How do I look? Like a hood ornament. And again, that's kind of a nothing line, but Alan Arkin makes a whole meal out of it. It's so yeah, he's he's so good in this man. Yeah. Uh I guess that leaves best moment, worst moment, MVP before we start talking about lasting effect on the genre. Mm-hmm. Uh I think we should start with the sour here. Uh worst moment. So for me. One of the only times the movie ever like I ever, ever felt like taken out from the movie by the movie. Uh, I thought the uh, initial and it should have been like kind of a money shot, right? The first time the rocketeer like flies out in the space, not to space, into the sky to help like that one fighter pilot or you know the trick pilot at the air show who's um, yeah, no, who's like who went off and shouldn't have. Yeah, and he I was. Guess kind we should of- set the scene right because he's running late. The Rocketeer has to like do trick shows because um, he he's in debt to to a guy, mm-hmm. and so he has to do trick shows. But he's running late because he was messing around with the the rocket, and so his kind of friend who has like PTSD from World War One decides to take his place in the trick rocket. But he can't like like he he can't fly anymore. Like he shouldn't right. have done it. Yeah, but, and so. It was a bad idea for him to do this, but he did it because someone had to do it. And it's supposed to take this lesson for Cliff, you know. And so here's this moment where he's able to kind of like save him because this, uh, this friend of PTSD is going down and he's, it's not going to be good. And the whole uh, air show audience about to watch him die. And so up into the air goes Cliff Secord. He's now becoming the Rocketeer. And the fine effects in the daytime look bad. <laughs> <laughs> and it the moment kind of deflated. And you can say, Ryan, it was the early '90s. Come on, Superman flew in the daytime, and it looked fine. And well, in the f- first couple movies, it looked fine. Uh, those kind of are deteriorating too. So I, I was disappointed by that, and that was it. Could have it should have been like a really powerful moment, and instead of sitting there going like, ah. Oh, there's the oh, there's the green screen, yeah. That's that's fair. Although I guess I was more forgiving of that than you were, but maybe because I have some childhood nostalgia in those scenes. Sure, and also there's not a whole lot else for me to pick on too. So it stood out um, to me. I can't just go yeah. worst moment anytime Billy Campbell is on screen. That's not <laughs> fair. Like, yeah. Um, I don't know if this is a fair criticism of my worst moment, okay. but one actor we didn't talk about was John Polito. Yeah, as, I know Don Polito, yeah. As, but we didn't talk about him before. He's in this movie. You know, he's got a head solid career. He had a, a small role here, but important because like 
you know, he's the guy who he, the Rocketeer owed money to. Mm-hmm. So they owed money to and had to do shows for, right? And mm-hmm. so everyone's looking for the, the guy with this rocket and they rightly assume that Bigelow, this character knows who it is. And so they, they send Lothar to go talk to him and he like tells him what he wants to know and they get folded in half. <laughs> and, and for me that, even though they talk about this movie being kidified, that didn't, that didn't fit, I thought. I thought that was like, maybe. That felt like a, felt like a dark man. Yeah, it did. Like, because first of all, like it's, it's campy, but it, it's, the character still died and he got, he like, he got fooled like a launch. I mean, it was, it felt totally weird. Especially since they don't do it again. Cause like Lothar folds him in half, right? Yeah, and he had kind of folded. He he hadn't really messed up the guy in the on the hospital bed too. And I understand, like, I don't know the fact that they took a character, like maybe not the most likable character, but one you you had gotten to know, and they just like had him murdered in this, this grotesque fashion. They kind of they kind of played it for a joke, but they also wanted it to be somber. I don't know. I I just felt like yeah that sticks out to me as as a bit of a, a misstep. Like I don't think he needed to die. Uh, agreed. I don't, I don't think his death forwarded the action any. He gave up the information. I had, um, forgot, I had forgotten about that, and I think that is a testament to it not fitting in with the movie because it's it feels like it feels like a different production altogether. It doesn't even feel it, particularly like thirty serial either. Like no, it, it doesn't. And so I don't know. I guess that that would be the worst moment for me. Uh, and I guess maybe the justification is that's kind of like when the heroes realize, like, holy shit, this is real. Like, someone just died. Right, but it but never happens again. It never happens again. I don't know. I don't think... I think that whole gunfight at Phoebe's house sufficiently did that. I don't think they needed to actually kill someone for that uh, sobering reality hit. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just my take on that. But yeah, that was my worst moment. Yeah, with you there. But now we've gotten the sour out of the way. Let's do the sweet best moment. Uh, what did you have? Mine was that restaurant sequence. Says you strap it on your back. And- I'm sorry, oh, you idiot. How clumsy of me. Get go and get something to clean this up. Yes. They built up a lot of movie to it, and I thought it was great. The stuff between Jennifer Connelly and Timothy Dalton and the Billy Campbell. That was one of the few scenes where I actually like like his performance as the waiter. Mm-hmm. I thought he was I thought he was genuinely funny. Um, when he yeah, was he's good. The way on them, and then like you know you have like he's the rocketeer in this confined confined space. He's having trouble leaving, and eventually he just goes to the roof. Also, one, in, in consideration for one of my favorite lines, but uh, I like I have to tell you this, Jenny. I'm the rocketeer. <laughs> Who <laughs> haven't you been reading newspapers? No, I've been really busy at work. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, I love that. Um, so I, I thought that whole sequence was really good. And like I said, I felt that was even like a stronger sequence than what the movie ended on. Agreed. And I think it's maybe one of the only scenes that played to any of uh, Billy Campbell's like supposed, supposed strengths. I'm not, I'm not harassing the guy, but like, I feel like if you had more of that, throughout the movie that kind of like dopey like I'm trying my best kind of guy this movie could have been aces this could have been you know an A plus 
but you only get it in the fits and spurts here. And that's a good example of it. My best scene was the scene is after Jenny's been kidnapped and Neville's trying to seduce her, but he's using lines from his, from his movies. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Yeah. Yeah. And it ends with Jenny going, I finally got to. <laughs> I finally played a scene with Neville Sinclair. <laughs> I, I yeah, it's clever. It's um, yeah. it's short, succinct. It plays to his vanity again. Um, he mm-hmm. thinks he's the shit, and she's not. Um, she sees right cool. through it. And it's a scene like that that makes me go, you know, do we think we we didn't really button this? Yeah, we didn't um, talk about this at all after teasing at the beginning. So but uh, do we, do we think she's too damsel in distressy? I think she could have done more, but I think scenes like that kind of help, un- like kind of cut through it a little bit. She is definitely a damsel in distress, but you don't mind it because, like you said, she she shows some intelligence and agency. She doesn't just like wait helplessly to be rescued. Right. She like uses her cunning to outsmart the villain, um, even though it ultimately doesn't work. Y- you don't feel like she's helpless, and so you know. She's technically a damsel in distress here, but you don't, like I said, I don't think you mind it so much because they do the work and to make sure she's interesting. And, you know, she actually like finds the radio and figures out mm-hmm. Nelson Sinclair's a Nazi and stuff like that. I mean, she actually, um, she does a lot more than your typical damsel in distress stuff. Yeah. And it takes a long time for the distress part to really kick in. For most of the movie, she's just like a gal with like aspirations and, you know, a life. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So I get what I'm concerned about it, and it's probably it's probably a far walk from how she's portrayed in the comics, but I don't know. It didn't seem particularly um So there you go. But uh, was it good enough for her to win MVP? We're gonna find out right now. <laughs> oh, I guess I'm going first. Um MVP. So yeah, there's lots of options here. Uh, I think Terry O'Quinn didn't uh, get enough playing time, but he's he's kind of an honorable mention on my leaderboard. I did mention Alan Arkin. Uh, strong, strong candidate. For me, though, it comes between two people, and uh, it's, Dal- it's Timothy Dalton and Joe Johnston himself for me. Um, I think both of them kind of help set the tone of this movie, maybe more than anybody else. Um, I do wonder, maybe the, maybe in a way for me to break the tie, I do kind of focus in on the fact that Johnston like personally handpicked Billy Campbell, which is also maybe like the movie's biggest attraction. And I'm wondering if that's enough for him to fall to second and give the gold to Timothy Dalton, who plays this Errol Flynn-esque swashbuckling Wannabe number one star has to settle for number three. <laughs> thinks he's hot shit, uh, and just go. I think I'll. I, I think I'll fancy myself a Nazi today. Um, I, he plays that so well. I can't. I literally cannot imagine anybody else playing that role in 1991. And he's the one I look back on. Like if uh, if anyone said, "Have you seen the Rocketeer?" or you know, if someone said, "I've never seen the Rocketeer," but you got to see it. Timothy Dalton's so good. And I think that that's. I think that's enough for me to give him. The MVP trophy for me. Wow, interesting. I mean, yeah, great choice. Um, you going Arkin here? I was going Johnson actually. Ooh. Um, but you know, your your point about him, like 
some, you know, being, being the reason why maybe the, the biggest flaw in the movie happening is a, is a valid choice, but I'm still going to go with Joe Johnson. Look, uh, it was, a, it, I had to like find something to help break the tie for me. So <laughs> it's, you know, I think it's a valid criticism, but he brings so much else to the table. Like he does. Uh, the action sequences in general are great and they're oh, really so exciting. Great. They're really inventive. Um, the whole tone and color, like you said, cinematography, which I guess it's not technically what it is, but you know, I feel like all that falls in the director's purview. The movie's really well paced. And I just think overall, you just, there's, there's so much going for this movie, but he's the one who, who put it all together and put it out there and, and allowed it to work. Look, it worked out. Looked out good for me. Um, my second choice got MVP anyway, so we're <laughs> <laughs> all golden here. Uh, Arkin, I, Arkin was close, though. I was thinking, I, and Dalton was someone I thought about too, but yeah, it was between Arkin and Johnson for me. Fair enough. Arkin, uh, well, I don't know if Arkin's going to come up again <laughs> in this series, but I guess I we'll see. I think so. Yeah. Hey. Uh, lasting effect on the genre, we did talk about the fact that this is sort of like the the kind of the Rosetta Stone for Captain America one, um, which is a monumental in its own right. It did occur to me this is now with um, oh, what was their first one? Uh, this is the second like box office bomb in the superhero genre for Disney because Condor Man was Disney, wasn't it? Yeah, and that did nothing, and this made its money back, but nothing more. And uh, of course, Disney's not going to get back in the superhero genre until they buy Marvel, right? Oh, that's what I was going to say. I wonder if this stuff like this made them wonder, like, we just got to buy our way into the into the genre. We can't just we can't make self produce these anymore. <laughs> Maybe. I know, like it's a, it's it's like a twenty year lag between this and you know that that acquisition, but I think there's a reason why they just they never try it again. And again, nineties nineties Disney's weird because the animation side of things is like you know <laughs> this golden age that we all grew up on live action stuff is a little bit more uh, not so sure um so yeah i think i think i think this has led directly to them to sustain away from superheroes for a while my personal opinion right though it's interesting because this being a box office flop more or less didn't seem to discourage studios from trying to make superhero movies with the old school aesthetic. Uh, we got coming up, we got the shadow coming up. Yep. Um, I would say the Joel Schumacher Batman movies, yep. which are still a little bit of ways, but they're still going for like an old 1960s Batman aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I do think it's, it's interesting how this movie, despite not being a financial success, did seem to encourage Hollywood to kind of keep going at it. Well, I mean, I think... At least in the short term. Yeah, it feels like a code worth trying to crack, right? Because again, people always kind of look back on old things with a little bit of whimsy, even if they weren't always that great. I mean, perhaps the 30s serials feel so comforting because the world was at war when those were being made. Uh, So it feels like... I can see studios being like, if we can figure out how to like repackage the old as something new, we're going to make a billion dollars. But yeah. whether they're successful, it's a harder thing to do, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't happen here, 
Uh, there any other sort of like lasting effect that this movie specifically had on the genre going forward? It feels like it should have more, more of a footprint, right? But it just it doesn't really. No, it doesn't. Um... That open-hearted whimsy and the wonder that um, some of the early Marvel stuff had, but again, that ties back to Cap One specifically, right? Which is maybe the Joe Johnson. Yeah, I don't know. Well, because I think I think you know what I think. Part what it is is like this doesn't. It's only technically a superhero movie. It's barely. There's no superpowers. Yeah. It's based off a comic. Um, it, it, yeah, it, I feel like it's kind of here on a technicality, and maybe that's part of the reason why it doesn't have a big, bigger footprint in superhero movies because, like, it's only kind of one. That's fair. It can only do so much, right? Right. Well, you've heard what we have to say. But what about our resident celebrity <laughs> critic? Right. I'm going to guess Lenny gives it two stars. Uh, you may be right. Uh, this is where I pull out my box. Uh, my, my box. This is where I pull out my book, Leonard Malton's 2010 Movie Guide. Uh, this is, I think this is a segment officially called Lenny's Movie Corner. And there's probably like a jingle or something after this. I'll play right here. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to flip through it. We're going to see what he says. And then we're going to give our own final summation. And then we're going to rock it out of here. It's rocking. A lot of things with the word rock in front of it, uh, believe it or not. Rocketeer, two and a half. Oh. Two and a half. Uh, let's see. Uh, Campbell plays a rough and ready 1930s pilot who stumbles onto a sought after secret weapon, an air pack that turns it into a rocket man. <laughs> The film captures the look of the 30s, as well as the gee whiz innocence of Saturday matinee serials, but it's talky and takes too much time to get where it's going. Dalton has fun as a villain pattern after Errol Flynn. Film buffs will get a kick out of the Rondo Hatton-esque bad guy, courtesy of makeup whiz Rick Baker. I don't know that it's talky. I don't even know if it takes too long to get going. I'm not sure I know what he's talking about there. Maybe he feels like you know, because this is a good 45 minutes before The Rocketeer actually, like, saves anybody. Yeah, that's fair. But, like, it's all table setting. I don't know. I, yeah. I think, like, I think the work done early on in the movie is necessary for the, for the second half. I feel like if it just gets going, I feel like he'd be upset about that, too. Like, <laughs> you have no time to learn about the characters before the, the CGI fest, not CGI fest, but the special effects fest begins. I don't know. But two and a half, I mean, that's, that's passing. Yeah. So he gave it two and a half out of four. What are we going to give it out of ten? You're going to find out right now. Do I go first or do you go first? I don't remember. I don't remember. It's been, I don't remember yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go high on this. Maybe higher than I expected. Because I really, really did enjoy it. A couple, a couple performances notwithstanding. Seven, seven, seven point five jetpacks out of ten. Is that is that, is that too? Am I going too high there? I almost thought that's what going. I was gonna. Oh, perfect. that's what I was gonna do. But I was wondering if I was having nostalgia when oh, I was grading it. Seven and a half, I think. I think that puts it up in the upper tier of everything we've seen so far. It does. It does. Which I think is fair given some of the things we've seen so far. <laughs> Supergirl. 
<laughs> Superman uh, 4. To name one, yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Um, that does it for the Rocketeer. But uh, next week, not only do I see a bat signal in the sky, I might see Santa and his eight tiny reindeer up in the sky because we got a Christmas movie going on next week, Jimmy. And uh, it's, it's a very, very good one in my estimation, at least in my memory. Uh, that's Batman Returns. Uh, and Tim Burton also returns, uh, g- giving us his second and final Batman movie. Uh, really quickly, uh, t- t- this is one I think you once said it was your favorite Batman movie, Once Upon a Time. Is that, yeah. Do I remember that correctly? Yes, for sure. I have definitely said that in the past. Did any of the Christian Bale movies top it since? I'm not sure. I have to think about that. But it's definitely one of my favorite Batman movies, if not my favorite Batman movie. It's definitely one of the more audacious Batman sequels, I think. And uh, we'll see if it holds up. Uh, so get your winter boots out and your, uh, your, your get, wrap your Christmas presents and all that because uh, Batman is coming to town, as is the Penguin and Catwoman. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. And Christopher Walken. Yeah, and Christopher Walken, who, ooh, early MVP favorite, possible? <laughs> Don't know. His hair is definitely an MVP favorite. <laughs> wow. Uh, so, d- ladies and gentlemen, if you like what you heard, you can find uh, some, some of our other content, uh, both superhero-related and uh, Doctor Who-related, at, at our Instagram, Pop Culture Historians Podcast. You can catch us on Twitter, probably, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, at PC Historians. We also have a website with an archive of our... Uh, past episodes uh pop culture historians podcast.wordpress.com life lesson for today uh keep the gum in your mouth no one wants to see that <laughs> unless you have a bullet hole in your extremely flammable jetpack in which case then you know ah that's a good point it blocks uh, everything you know yeah just be be aware it's it's, it's, it's situational right um <laughs> Don't put it on your desk, right? Yeah, that's yeah, that's just gross. Someone has to clean that up. But if you're if you're filling up a hole on your jetpack, that's that's a little bit understandable. Pick your fights, <laughs> and uh, you'll you'll be doing fine. All right, everybody, uh, that's us. That's it for this week. My name is Ryan. That was Jimmy. See you next week for Batman Returns. Uh, enjoy your week.